Hope everyone is doing well this morning. I am um, really excited about our message today. Um, if I have not had an opportunity yet and the privilege of meeting you, uh, my name is Jared. I get the privilege of serving here as the uh, pastor to middle school and high school students, as well as one of the men that you as a church have um, have allowed to serve in these last few months as one of our interim pastors as we look for a full-time um, lead pastor. And that has been a joy um, to get to stand before you here um, many Sundays and, and just give my best attempt um, by the power of the Spirit to, to impart to you a word from the Lord. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to get to do that. So good morning to all of you. And for those of you who will not be watching live, but good afternoon or good evening or whatever time of day you find yourself watching this um, later, um, greeting you as well. But uh, if you haven't already, um, I'm really, like I said, excited about this test. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to it. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. And as you're turning there, um, or as you're just listening, if you already turned there, um, last week, um, John Matthews, who is a beloved deacon and also Sunday school teacher here at our church, uh, I thought did a great job just giving us just an encouraging and challenging message um, from the first part of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 where we looked at how we, how we are to treat and honor one another and care for one another as a family of faith, the church, and specifically how we are to honor those who are widows, those who need um, extra care um, from the church body. Um, a few weeks prior to that, um, the second half of chapter five, we kind of did a little um, fruit basket turnover there a little bit um, for a specific purpose. Uh, but Kyle Bryant, a few weeks before that, along with chapter three, which deals with the, the roles of deacons and elders within the church, also looked at the part um, of the first part or the second part of chapter five in First Timothy, where it talks about the elders who are able to teach being worthy of dual honor. So we had honoring widows, honoring elders who are, have the ability to teach, which Paul goes on to explain. That means that they should be, they should be compensated. They should be um, taken care of by the church as well. And then we come here to the, the last of the three people that Paul says are deserving of honor. But the verses that follow kind of can seem a little bit disjointed for that. So in verses one and two, we've got three sections today. Verses one and two talk about how um, slaves ought to honor their masters. Verses three through five talks about false teachers. Again, this is now the third time we visit that. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then verses six through 10 are going to talk to us about the way that the church views wealth and riches, or rather, maybe even more so, the absence of those things. So the question is, how do all these relate? What is the common thread that, that flows through and connects these things? And I think it's really a twofold thing. And then I'm, so I'm gonna give you those two things, but then I wanna give a kind of a, a summary statement that's gonna be our guide for today. So the things are, one, it's Christ's sufficiency. That is, that's the title of this sermon is the sufficiency of Christ. Christ's sufficiency in all things, but it's specifically in these three areas. And then secondly, it's our perspective, what is, what is our perspective on these topics? And is it being for, informed by the sufficiency of Christ or some other thing that we are trying to find sufficiency in? So here's the summary statement for today that's gonna guide us. Christ's sufficiency in our work, in his word, and even in the absence of wealth should give Christians an eternal perspective that motivates us to live for the unity of the church and the salvation of the lost 
to the glory of God. I'm gonna give you a second to write that down, so I'm gonna say it one more time. Christ's sufficiency in our work, in his word, and even in the absence of wealth should give Christians an eternal perspective that motivates us to live for the unity of the church, the salvation of the lost, to the glory of God. So with that in mind, I want to pray and ask the Lord to illumine his scriptures through his spirit today. And then we will dive in and we're gonna break these up into three um, sections and read each section um, before we discuss it. So let's pray. Father, Lord, you are sufficient, Lord. And as I stand here, I stand insufficient on my own. Lord, in so many ways. But Lord, you are sufficient. Lord, you take broken vessels and through our cracks, your gospel shines if we will be obedient to you. Lord, would you do that today as I seek um, to give this church a word from you, Lord, and may you be glorified, may your church be edified, may souls be brought to salvation through your word that does not return empty or void, but accomplishes what it sets forth to do. God, Lord, we thank you in advance for this and pray things in Jesus' name, amen. So again, we're in 1 Timothy uh, chapter six, and the, we're gonna just dive into the, these first two verses. Um, so beginning in verse one, Paul writes, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Now, before we really can dive into this, we need to clarify some things and give some context. Um, the ESV that I just read from translates a word in that first verse, bond servants. Um, and you may be familiar, you may have a different translation that translates it um, as the ESV footnote does as slaves, the Greek word doulos, which happens numerous, numerous times, both in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, as well as the New Testament. Um, it's a term that is used for Jesus himself, by Jesus himself. Um, and it's something that we need to understand and give context for. Because when we talk about slavery, pictures come into our mind. Um, there is something there, especially in the not so distant history of our country and the atrocities that were committed in a certain form of slavery that existed for a number of years. And so we need to clarify what exactly Paul is speaking into here. Because as we look into these verses, um, Paul is again addressing slaves and their masters. And really he's addressing specifically here only the slaves, giving them instruction. Although in other places in the New Testament, as we will see, Paul also gives instructions for, um, for the masters as well. But here's what it says and what we need to understand. First of all, we need to understand that the that first century slavery in the Roman Empire was very, very different in many ways from the transatlantic slave trade that happened and was part of our nation's history. We need to understand that very clearly um, before we accuse Paul or God's word of doing something that it is not doing. Um, there were very, very huge differences. Um, historians estimate that in the first century Roman Empire, as many as one third of the population, as much as one third of the population were slaves. That's a huge number. In fact, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 60 million people 
in the Roman Empire. So it was a institution that had very, very deep roots in the social fabric of Rome and the Roman world. So slaves during that time, they were acquired in numerous ways. Um, Some slaves actually sold themselves into slavery um, in order to gain Roman citizenship. Um, That was a way for them to work for a time and then be set free. And during this time, it was very common for slaves to be set free by the time they were 30 years old and to function as free people in that society. Um, Other times, slaves were bought. They were given as gifts. They were prisoners of war. They um, they They were entering into slavery to pay off debt. Numbers of numerous different things. But in this time and place, the overall general rule for slavery was that it functioned much more like an employee of an employer. Um, Again, a very different social dynamic in most cases. That doesn't mean that we should assume that there weren't very, very cruel, harsh slave masters um, who treated their slaves as less than human. We should not assume that that's not the case. In fact, 1 Peter, as we'll look at later in chapter two, assumes that there are cruel and harsh slave masters during this time. And it gives instruction um, in light of this. But the reality is, in many ways, again, not to say that slavery was a good thing. Again, it was, a, um, it was an institution that was implemented by sinful human beings, not by the good creation of God in the beginning. Um, and so therefore it is going to have outworkings of sinfulness in it. But overall in the first century in the Roman empire, it functioned much more like an employee employer relationship. And in many ways, I like being part of the household or the family to which the slave served. Um, in many ways, it's provided more social stability and security for slaves than a higher day laborer would have. Um, and these, these slaves would function, these bond servants would function in ways such as teachers, they would be artisans. In, in many cases, they were actual estate managers of very large wealth. Um, in many ways, it was not unlike Joseph's role in the Old Testament um, under Pharaoh. Um, coming out of slavery, but functioning much more like someone who is a, a ruler over a great amount of wealth. Slaves in that time were allowed to own other slaves. Um, they were able to function in society in many ways. And so we need to understand these things to understand what Paul is speaking into here. Um, again, the Bible never, never advocates slavery. Not at one point. It also never calls in the Old Testament or New Testament for the abolishment of slavery. Um, This is true um, because again, as we would see the the deep roots that were happening here, it would have actually caused the downfall and the destruction of the social fabric of Rome and of um, just society at large and caused greater problems than for it to be reformed from the inside, which is we're gonna look is the goal of the gospel in this and the goal of Paul's instruction. Um, again, the Bible never advocates slavery. Again, it's part of human institution, which has sin ingrained into the very fabric of it, um, not part of God's good created order in the beginning. The Bible does, however, regulate slavery. And this is an important thing because it also does this in other areas. Like for instance, another sinful institution of divorce that we see that happens. This was not God's intentions, but it was a part of society. And so God speaks into this as a way that seeks to remove it from the inside out, to reform it from the inside out. 
So as we look at this, there are many places that we can see how the Bible does this. Um, Exodus 21 and Leviticus 25 are examples of Old Testament places where slavery is regulated. And then texts like 1 Timothy 6, Ephesians chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3, and, the, and verse 1 of chapter 4, Titus 2, and 1 Corinthians 7 all provide things of speaking into how Christians specifically ought to view this institution and function within it. Um, there's two other quick texts I wanna mention too that I think are very, very vital for us to understand a biblical um, understanding of slavery, which we don't have time to go into entirely today. But those two texts are this. First, Genesis 1.27. This is foundational to every single human interaction, that every human being, male and female, are created in the image and likeness of God. This gives divine in divine um, and inherent dignity to every single human being it, it, that no one has the right to remove. Um, this is first and this is critical. The second though is in actually, we saw earlier in chapter one of First Timothy, verse 10 of that, Paul lists the word that the ESV translates enslavers. Um, most literally that Greek word trans to, translates to man stealers. Um, he lists that among those who are lawless and disobedient, ungodly sinners, unholy and profane, contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, contrary to the word of God. Enslavers, kidnappers, man stealers. It doesn't take a Greek scholar to realize that is talking about the transatlantic slave trade that happened during the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries um, in Western Europe from Africa and into the Americas and this world that was discovered in the Western Hemisphere. We need to understand this applies to that. It also applies to human trafficking that goes on today of over 27 million slaves who are trafficked today. The Bible is unequivocal in its condemnation of these things. We have to understand that as we look at these verses. So as we look at that, we again want to remind ourselves that the context Paul is speaking into is most closely related to an employer and employee relationship. And this is important, one, to understand that context, but also to understand what it has to say to us today. So with that in mind, I thought that was an important excursus that we do here at the beginning before we jump into the text today. But let's turn our attention back to these first two verses. And when we look at these, the first thing that we need to look to is the sufficiency of Christ in our work. Um, each of these two verses is easily broken down into two parts. Paul's gonna give an instruction and then he's gonna give a reason for that instruction. So in verse one, he's gonna talk to unbelieving uh, or slaves who have unbelieving masters. In verse two, he's gonna talk to slaves who have believing masters. And in this case, we have to understand and it's important to note that both sets of bond servants or slaves that he is speaking to are Christians, this is a Christian perspective that he is giving regardless of the status of faith of the master. So those who profess faith in Christ are held to a new standard. We have to understand this. It's a higher one because a higher call on their life has been realized, which is the glory of God and the going forth of the gospel. So to unbelieving masters, Paul's first instruction is let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. In other words, if you're working for someone, you should respect that person simply by virtue of the fact that they are your, um, your authority over you. They are a boss of sorts over you. You should treat them as that, but you should also treat them that, not just by the virtue of their position, but because they, again, they're made in the image of God. 
Just as a master should not be harsh with his slave because that slave is a image bearer of God, so also respect should be shown for someone. Honor should be shown to all people by virtue of the fact that we are all made in God's image and likeness. This is a fundamental truth of scripture. And Paul goes on to give his twofold qualifier as well for this. So that the name of God and the teaching, in other words, sound doctrine that Paul has been talking about all through this letter may not be reviled. Paul wrote to 1 Timothy, um, Christianity was still very much in its early stages, um, probably around 30 years old, a um, few decades of Christianity being a, a thing in the world since Christ's resurrection and ascension. And in these early stages, it was in danger of becoming synonymous with disrespect and insubordination. What an indictment against the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most freeing, the, most, the, the best news that has ever been given to humanity. What an indictment. Um, and this is happening because slaves have now felt that their higher calling and their salvation in Christ has alleviated them from honoring their masters, doing good work and being respectful. Um, again, a terrible indictment that pagans who worship false gods, which Paul otherwise, other places, um, in, including First Timothy earlier here, says is, are demons, um, that these are the doctrines of demons from the false teachers. Demonic believing pagans have better work ethic and better attitudes in serving than Christians. What a terrible thing to be said about the gospel and to point back to Christ. And so Paul's saying this must not happen. He reminds them that slaves working for unbelieving masters had this twofold responsibility, again, of glorifying God and of advancing the gospel in the way that they serve. Those bond servants do in fact have a higher calling. They do have a higher calling, but it's to honor Christ and to represent him to a lost world, which includes their unbelieving masters. Um, thus, their work should be all the better. It should be all the better for this reason. Such instruction was not new to the Ephesian church either. Um, in about four-ish years earlier, when Paul wrote the letter of Ephes to Ephesians, um, in chapter six, verses five through eight, he writes, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. It's worth noting that Paul instructs Christian bondservants to honor and obey their unbelieving masters without giving the exemption, again, of whether those masters are harsh and cruel. And this is a hard reality to, to set in. But in 1 Peter chapter two, as I mentioned earlier, Peter assumes that there will be some who have masters who are cruel and who are harsh. And Peter writes in verses 18 through 20, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious gift in the sight of God. The importance of how we serve unbelieving employers um, today, again, it holds a lot of truth for us. Um, 
You may be right now under an employer who is unreasonable or harsh um, or greedy or treats you poorly or speaks down to you. However, regardless of that, your witness to them in the way that you act as a believer is of greatest importance. And it, Pastor Kent Hughes tells a, an interesting story about the witness opportunities that Christians have to their unbelieving employers. He says um, that he had a former employer tell him about how he was skeptical of Christianity, but specifically that skepticism had grown because he had two theological students that worked for him. And these two theology students um, were always standing around having theological discussions rather than doing their work. But this kind of all reached a head and a peak when one day the boss um, observed these um, two as one emerged from the bathroom where he had been for 20 minutes and whispered to his um, theological student buddy, um, I just had the best time. I read three chapters in the gospel of John. To this, um, Pastor Dr. Hughes rightly uh, re- exclaims, three chapters of John in the John on the boss's time pleases neither God nor man. The way that we work matters, church. What we communicate in the way that we go to our work is so important to a onlooking lost world and specifically those who are in authority over us. We have the opportunity to reform things again by changing hearts from the inside out. The way that we work communicates something, especially when we are known as Christians. It has gospel significance, eternal significance. For most adults, the workplace is your primary mission field. That's the reality for many. Uh, And that needs to be taken with great responsibility and, and also seen as a great opportunity, an opportunity to share the gospel both verbally by sharing the the revelation God has given in his word, but also in the way that you work. Maybe it's without complaining as the rest of your coworkers do. Maybe it's just that you do the greatest work. Martin Luther was famous for saying that a Christian um, cobbler doesn't prove himself to be such by putting crosses on all the shoes he makes, but by making the best shoes he possibly can. We should be like that. Students, the same is true for you in your classes. Your professors, your teachers should see that the work that you invest is being done for a higher calling, is to reflect the goodness of your savior, of your God. Moms that stay at home to raise children, you too have a responsibility as you model a Christ-honoring work ethic to your children that is to point them to one day believe in Jesus Christ. We all have something to learn for us and it should give us a missional motivation of how we work. But we must go on. Believing masters are also addressed by Paul in verse two. He goes on to say, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Um, We can infer from what Paul says here um, in this this part of the verse that some slaves, there were probably slaves and masters in the church um, in Ephesus. And this was causing some confusion on how they ought to now socially interact. Again, places like Galatians 3.28 says, we are all equal. There's no longer any distinction between slave and free, between even male and female, because we are all in Christ now. And surely this had been something that Paul had communicated um, in the church at Ephesus as well. And so this had become a higher and more overly realized eschatology in many ways for them. It doesn't matter how our social interactions are. 
doesn't matter. I don't, have to, I don't have to answer to you anymore was the attitude that was obviously coming up. Um, it was a spiritual pass, essentially, to be lazy and disrespectful. Uh, and Paul says, this isn't appropriate. He says, there's an on, one, there's an onlooking world that sees this. And this is, again, a missional opportunity. They should see order within the church. They should res- respect. Again, just on the fact and the grounds that we are co-image bearers, that we are all image bearers of God, and now we are all brought in as brothers and sisters in Christ should be the only grounds that matters for honor. That's what Paul is speaking of in places like Galatians 3.28. But it doesn't change and abolish those social, um, those social characteristics that we have, those social relationships we have. Um, and so Paul gives then the idea that in verse, the second part of that verse, he says, rather these must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. All the more, it should bring us joy to serve one another. This is just simply any Christian to any other Christian. We should be like our savior who served us, who we'll look at here in just a second. The fact that we are serving or working for a fellow believer, if that's your employee's, uh, employer situation, um, should give you more motivation rather than less to do good work. Because again, the one who's benefiting from it is beloved. And again, that employer has the responsibility to be um, treating you as one who is beloved as well. Mutual faith in Christ provides the context for every relationship rather than abolishing those relationships. And this also has a missional purpose, like we've said, for an onlooking world who is looking to see how we treat one another within the church. This is so important. But we also see that there's a great importance that we should um, understand of how masters then treat their slaves. Like we said, um, the ones they have authority over, again, they're both made in the image and likeness of God, but also Colossians 4.1 and Ephesians 6, nine are places where Paul clearly states that both slaves and masters have the same master who is in heaven. And with him, there is judgment without partiality. This is great news for all of us, because again, there is no relationship where we have the past to show honor to one another. This is something that we're all called to do. Slavery has always been an institution of man and not of God. Uh, and thus it has been a sinful system. Uh, and it's made more sinful, again, by the fact that there are individual sinners contributing their sin to it. Um, that, is the, that is the reality of slavery. And for this reason, though, many people have asked, since it is a sinful institution, why does the Bible not teach that it should just be abolished entirely? And to this, I would give us, I think, the, the word, from the word of God, two quick reasons. One, Christianity is not primarily aimed at social reform. It's not. The Bible indicates that in no way. It is primarily aimed at personal redemption. Doesn't mean that social reform doesn't matter. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't be about reforming it from the inside out, but it is person to person relationships of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not going to die out or be abolished one day. It's gonna reign forever in his kingdom. We have to have an eternal perspective on this. Human effort at social reform can only replace one broken system with another. It's the, it's the, 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 the reality of it. And Adam and Eve are perfect examples of this. They were given a perfect system and they broke it. How do we think that our sinful states would bring anything else? We're starting from not from a perfect system. 
We're part, sorry, for many ways in a broken, very broken system as all human institutions are. But we have an opportunity. We don't need a better system. We need a savior who can give us new hearts. That is what we need. Every individual needs. It is clear from gospel, from the, throughout the gospel, throughout the scriptures. The gospel works from the inside out, changing hearts, replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. This is the gospel. This is the word of God. And through this, it changes the way that we relate to others in society and in its systems. This is the way that the gospel brings something that our efforts never can. We are to be faithful in proclaiming the goodness of Christ to those that we have the opportunity to do so. Social reform ultimately only treats the systems, or I'm sorry, the symptoms, but the gospel roots out and remedies the disease. Social reform only and ultimately only treats the symptoms. The gospel roots out and remedies the disease. So secondly, the other reason I believe that the gospel and, and the Bible does not call for just an absolute abolishment of these things is that the essence of Christianity is that our master, our king, our Lord made himself our servant. And so in turn, we gladly become his slave. Here is where we see in spite of all of its harder horrors, the concept of slavery serves as a, again, a broken vessel through which the light of the gospel can shine. It shines through the cracks because the light of the gospel is brightest in the darkest of places. Calvary, the cross is the greatest proof of this. And as we look to our Lord, again, I'm not speaking about the abusive acts that the Bible clearly condemns unequivocally, I'm not speaking about the atrocities that have happened through slavery. I'm not speaking the 27 million who are trafficked today. By the way, of those 27 million, about 20 million, over 20 million are women and girls. And also to add to that, roughly 14 million are minors. The Bible speaks unanimously in its voice and in its text against harming and exploiting people in general, but especially the vulnerable. We have to be clear about this. I'm not speaking about those atrocities. I'm not speaking about those wrongs against human dignity, but I am speaking about the state of servitude and making ourselves lowly. This is a call to Christians. It is. For to place ourselves above servitude is to place ourselves above Christ. We have to come to grips with that reality. In John 13, the night before he was to be betrayed, the night he was betrayed, the night he was put on a, a rigged trial and then the night before he was crucified, Christ took the lowliest of positions as a servant and washed his disciples' feet, even Judas's feet. We must not miss this. Our savior has modeled this for us. He has called us to do the same. That's when Colossians 3, 23 and 24 speaks, it speaks to all of us when it says, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When we do this, Paul says in Titus 2.10 that we adorn the doctrine of God, our savior. What a beautiful picture that we adorn the gospel of God in the way that we work, the way that we serve others willingly and gladly. Gladly. 
for the glory of God. So as verse two closes, Paul says, teach and urge these things. And scholars go back and forth. Is it talking about what he just said? Is it talking about what he's about to say? It's both. It's both. He's just talked about three different people, three different groups of people that need to be honored within the church. And now he's of course gonna be talking about false doctrine. Uh, you need to be aware of false doctrine. If you didn't get that, this is the third time Paul has, has talked about it. Talked about it in chapters one and chapter four already. And so here again, he's going to talk about that. And then he's gonna to talk to us about the way that we view riches, which we're gonna to have to move through quickly. So let's get into it. So here we go. Um, verse three through five, Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and, and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Okay, so this is again now the third time that Paul has talked about false teaching. So something clicks at the end of um, what he's talked about in verses one and two here. And he's like, I need to address this Again, he addressed it in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7 and 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, where he denounces Gnosticism, he denounces asceticism. He says, we need to um, look to the law and not try to act like we have something better. And we need to look to God's creation and not act like it's something that should be avoided. But here in our verses, I think there's, again, five quick things that we're gonna look through. I promise they're quick. First, in chapter, as in chapter one, they're teaching, these false teachers teaching, is a deviation from the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Old Testament scriptures and apostolic teaching that yielded the New Testament is entirely, entirely sufficient for the Christian faith. That's an, that is a, a, we cannot cave about that. It is entirely sufficient as it was then, it is now thousands of years later. We must, be, um, we must be steadfast in this. This is the doctrine of sola scriptura from the Reformation that Martin Luther kicked off in October, on October 31st of 1517. That scripture alone is our authority because it speaks from the authority of Christ. Scripture is sufficient and Jesus stated very clearly that all of it, all of it is about him. We see the sufficiency of Christ in his word. In John 5, 39, Jesus is talking to some Jews who were listening probably at the temple from the context. And he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. On the road to Emmaus, Christ also did something very similar when he said, to those who are walking with him. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And the next verse, verse 26, he says, and beginning with Moses, or verse 27, sorry, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Scriptures point to Christ. He is the author and the main character of them salvation, faith, the gospel, it's all about him and it's all his idea. Therefore, we don't need a better gospel. We don't need more added to it. Paul draws a distinction here again between sound um, doctrine um, and, and what is healthy regarding the teaching of Christ in, in verse three. And then in verse five, he points out this unhealthy characteristic of the false teaching. 
It's unhealthy. That word um, can literally mean morbid, which we'll talk about here in a second. But any additional revelation found outside of scripture, what's considered revelation, and there can come, but it is always, always must be in agreement with Christ's word, with the word of the Old and New Testament. If it isn't, it must be rejected, unequivocally and unashamedly. Since the church began, people have been trying to come up with a better gospel. (laughs) We see it here, a better gospel. And so it should not be a surprise to us that people still try to do that today. Their attempts, though, are like grass. (laughs) They won't last. They cannot stand but the word of the Lord endures forever. We're told in Isaiah chapter 40. But secondly, we also must see that not only are they um, in their teaching, not only are they deviating, but they are also delusional. (laughs) Um, The phrase in the ESV that says, he is puffed up with conceit, understands nothing, that begins verse four. Um, More pointedly, the revised English Bible, which is a UK version, you know, they have a way of saying things differently. They say, he's a pompous ignoramus. False teachers are pompous ignoramuses. Um, Don't be a false teacher, okay? Um, Paul highlights in chapters one and two um, this same point. He talks about how their ignorance um, and their arrogance are like these things that just are back and forth. You don't even know which one started it. It's just this cycle. Ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, arrogance, 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 ignorance. It's all there and they feed off one another for this hollow haughtiness that comes about. But thirdly, Paul also says that their teaching is destructive and divisive, um, both to themselves and their followers and also to the church. Um, The word, again, unhealthy here um, can also be translated morbid. It's like it's bringing death um, while the words of Christ, as again, in contrast, bring us life, spiritual life, eternal life. Um, This is something that's a stark contrast um, and this craving for controversy and quarrels stands in stark contrast to our Lord who in John 17, the night again of his betrayal and before his crucifixion, prays that we would be one. So, so different. Jesus taught that we would know false teachers by their fruits. And Paul says here that these false teachers produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, evil suspicions, and constant friction. We know them by their fruits. Fourth, though, Paul teaches um, that these, or I'm sorry, fourth, Paul says that these teachers leave their followers depraved and deprived um, because they themselves are actually depri- depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Romans 1, 18 through 32, um, we're not gonna turn there today, but it is what my preaching professor called one of the sewers of scripture because it lays out in gruesome detail the sickness and the depravity of humanity in our sin. Um, it is a, is a gruesome reality, but it's one that we have to look at um, because it results from suppression of the truth, Paul says early on in those verses. Suppression of the truth, pushing it down as if it doesn't exist. It's the idea of you know, someone pops up out of, the, um, out of the pool and you dunk them back down because you don't wanna hear what they're about to say. That's the kind of thing that Paul's saying, suppressing the truth, not to be heard. The bad news that is necessary to enable us to see that the gospel is truly good news That bad news is that every single person is in captivity to depravity. It's so true and it's evident throughout the Bible. Um, Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We need a better word. Yet Jesus in John 8, 31 through 32, he says to his disciples, 
that we would know the truth and the truth will set us free. We're not in captivity to depravity under Christ. John 14, six says that Jesus is the truth. We know the truth that sets us free by knowing Christ himself. He is sufficient. And in contrast, once again, Paul says these false teachers deprive people of the truth instead um, because they don't even know the truth themselves. How can they give it to anyone else? But fifthly, Paul also says that these false teachers are dollar driven. Okay, I get it. They didn't have dollars, I understand. Maybe denarius driven, if you wanna put that in your nose, whatever, you get the point. They are motivated by money. I had to go with the, all, the, all the D acronyms, it's, it's the Baptist way. Um, like televangelists and preachers of the prosperity gospel today, they are motivated by their own lining of their pockets and they teach others to value the same thing. Paul says it's an abomination. Here, they think that godliness is a means of gain. The Greek word used here uh, and, and, the Paul, and then Paul's comments that are gonna come here in just a second in verses six through 10, make it clear that Paul is referring to financial gain. There's, there's no doubt about this. Um, their hearts were not set on true godliness, but on a godliness that had con- they had contrived to get themselves rich. Um, once again, the contrast to Christ could not be greater as 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that he, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich, spiritually speaking, eternally Jesus left his throne as king of the universe to be born into a poor family from Nazareth. He never owned property. He died with no possessions and he was laid in a tomb that wasn't even his. Jesus clinged to nothing in this world, but he brought salvation to it through his poverty. Jesus was truly poor in this life, yet he became to make us rich in him not in a financial sense, but in a spiritual, eternal one. And that's far better, church. It's so much better. Christ's word is sufficient because Christ himself is sufficient. As Paul told the Galatians, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He said, even if us one day were to preach something different or an angel from heaven, let them be accursed. In other words, if anyone proclaims anything but the sufficiency of Christ, let him be accursed. He knows not of the sufficiency of our Lord. So in his commentary, as we kind of wrap this up and, and move on quickly to our last point to, to, for today, John Stott says um, that Paul gives us in these, in these three verses, three, four, and five, um, some pra- three practical tests to um, evaluate all teaching by. Number one, is it compatible with the apostolic faith of the New Testament? Is it in line with that? Does it agree with that? Does it submit to that? Secondly, does it tend to unite or divide the church? Christ unites, we divide. Make no mistake. Thirdly, does it promote godliness with contentment or covetousness? Which brings us into our last point and our final section for today. Is it contentment or is it covetousness? Paul's gonna address both. The sufficiency of Christ in the absence of wealth. These last five verses, again, we're gonna look at 
Um, we're gonna look at them separately. Verses six through eight says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul just said that they think financial gain is, is what to be gained for godliness. But he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. He just slammed these false teachers, but he said, actually, there is gain. There's great gain in godliness, just not the one the false teachers are promoting. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, This harkens back to what Paul said in chapter four, verse eight, that godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. Godliness with contentment sees everything in in life uh, through the lens of eternity. Everything in this life is seen through the lens of eternity with godliness that is accompanied with contentment. So Paul then roots this statement and the reality that Job spoke of in Job 121, when he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So what Paul says when he, he says, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing from it. Y'all, Job was a baller, by the way, if you forgot. It wasn't Job was saying this after everything had been stripped from him when he basically had nothing anyway. He was like, oh, well, didn't really have that much to begin with. Job was one of the richest men in fact, the, Job chapter one says he was the richest of all the men in his area of the world at that time. He had great possessions and he still understood what Paul is saying here, that even the greatest of wealth will one day be left behind. We didn't bring it in and we won't bring it out. Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk will all one day be just as dead and own just as much as the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. That's the reality. It's just traveling luggage for us Christians though. Anything we have is just traveling luggage through this world. So instead of striving after riches that will not last, Paul says, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. We don't have time to turn there today, but Jesus talks about this in Matthew six. And I'll briefly talk about how, look at the birds, look at the grass. They lack nothing that they need. God adorns the grass beautifully that one day is is there and then the next day it's thrown into the fire because it's cut. He says, if God provides for his creation, how much more will he provide the things that you need? Don't be assessed with in the way that those who don't know God are. Don't look like the world and the things that you chase after and pursue. You have something far better that is offered to you. Jesus and Paul are, of course, advocating that someone be content with just being destitute or being in abject poverty. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, Christians ought to be content with having enough. Enough. A life of modesty. After all, why do we need exorbitance? Why do we need excess if we can't take it with us anyway? If it's all gonna be left behind, why do we need it? That's why Jesus says earlier in Matthew chapter six, verse 20, to lay up treasures in heaven because only those treasures will truly last. Only those will last. In his book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn says something that I thought was just profound. It's shot right into my heart. He says, each day brings us closer to death. If your treasures are on earth, each day brings you closer to losing them. Each day brings you closer to losing them. I think it was the same kind of understanding that the missionary and martyr Jim Elliott had when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. What a motivation for the way that we should live our lives. But you may be sitting there thinking, okay, contentment. Okay, I get it, Jared, fine. But where do we draw the line with that? I mean, what, is it always wrong to want nice things? Is it always wrong to, to desire those things? I'm so glad you asked because I have two things I think are very helpful to us as we look at this. Number one is the evangelical commitment to simple lifestyle. It was drafted in Manila, South Africa in 1989 by a council that met there. Um, I think it's a great framework for us to start with. It says, we resolve to renounce waste and oppose extravagance in personal living, clothing and housing, travel and church buildings. We also accept this distinction between necessities and luxuries, creative hobbies and empty status symbols, modesty and vanity, occasional celebrations and normal routine, and between the service of God and slavery to fashion. Where to draw the line requires conscientious thought and decision by us together with members of our family. The other thing I think that is helpful is what Paul writes in verses nine and 10 as we close today. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul is now addressing those who covet riches. Um, he begins by essentially saying, the prospect of being rich, it's bait for it's the bait of a trap and that trap brings ruin and destruction. That prospect, that, that thought that I could have that and it'll make me satisfied. It's just bait for a trap. The consequences of falling to that trap are severe because the desire to be rich does several things. One, it causes us to be discontent and then it causes us to be anxious because we're discontent. It causes us not to trust God to provide for us it causes us to pursue temporal things rather than eternal things. It causes us to believe the lie that wealth can satisfy us. And it causes us to chase senseless things that are actually harmful to us. Even Solomon, who is the wisest man who ever lived, the Bible says, and certainly one of the wealthiest, could not stay away from the temptation of this trap. And it led to the destruction of, of himself personally and his kingdom. Jesus warns in Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But if our heart is set on becoming rich, the Bible also teaches us that it cannot be set at the same time on the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. God in the things of this world, God in, and wealth. So we must be willing to let God's word examine our hearts. What are we ultimately seeking in this life and the life to come? Riches that won't last or riches that will? Scripture is clear. If we serve money, it's because we love more money more than we love God. It's a hard truth, but it's a truth. As Paul says in verse 10a, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Money is not itself the problem, our hearts are and how it, they abuse and misuse and set themselves on the idolatry that comes from having wealth. 
Loving money or what we might call greed or covetousness is the root that plants itself in our hearts and then grows and produces all kinds of poisonous fruit. From a lack of trust in God to neglect of our family, to a willingness to lie on a resume or cheat on an exam, even to apathy or fear about sharing the gospel with lost friends, because what might it cost us? This craving Paul refers to poses the threat of leading us away from the faith in Christ entirely. It's a real and present threat. And this is why Jesus said it's easier for the camel, a camel to go through the eye of the needle um, than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's not impossible for all things are possible with God, but it's very difficult when our hearts are set so much on the things of this world. Psalm 10.3 likewise says, for the wicked boast of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In their pursuit of riches, Paul says, some have pierced themselves with many pangs. This literally translates to they have impaled themselves on grief. Impaled themselves. What a picture. Uh, the, the, the poet of the, night, great, uh, the 1990s, the notorious B.I.G. said, mo money, more, mo problems. <laughs> Paul had that idea about 2,000 years earlier. Um, wealth and the things of this, of this world so often bring so much more grief than they pro- when they promise to bring us so much satisfaction. Loving and pursuing Christ will bring us contentment as we pass through this life and it will bring us riches as we rest in eternity. Paul understood this personally as he wrote in Philippians 4, 12 and 13 that he had found the secret of having lots and having little and as that he can do all things through him, through Christ who gives him strength. Loving and pursuing money will get us neither. It will get us neither um, things for this life or for things for the next life ultimately. Um, it will not, the things that we have in this life won't enter in eternity with us, um, nor will we ever be content with any amount of money we gain in this life. How much money is enough? A little bit more. How many millions is enough? The next one. Never satisfies. It leaves us empty and hungry for more. If we, are, if we aren't content with what we have now, we won't be content later. Were it, were it tripled, were it quadrupled, were it exponentially increased, we won't be content. But Christ's sufficiency for us begins now as we trust him and it will last forever as our faith is one day made sight. Christ's provision for our physical life is sufficient because his provision for our spiritual life is sufficient. Romans eight thirty two reminds us that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is an argument from the greatest to the least. God has not spared the greatest thing that we need. He will surely not spare anything lesser than that. If God has given us everything in Christ that we need for salvation, we can rest assured he will also give us everything we need until Christ returns or as the song says, or he calls us home. There's a world that desperately needs you and me to proclaim this truth and to live it out. So as we close, I wanna remind us that Christ's sufficiency in our work, in his word, and even in the absence of wealth should give Christians an eternal perspective that motivates us to live for the unity of the church, 
for the salvation of the lost to the glory of God. Today, if you're feeling insufficient, Christ is your sufficiency. Come to him. He is begging you to come to him. Do you know him already, but yet you're struggling with anxiety? He is your sufficiency. Do you not know him and you are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places, I might add? Come to him. He is sufficient. So today, let Christ draw you to his sufficiency in whatever area. It might be one of these three topics or it might not be, but wherever it is, he is sufficient. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you for the reminder that we, de- so, we, we so need, that you are all we need. Or that our, our, <laughs> our lives will one day in this life, they will be over. But Lord, what we lay up as treasures in heaven will last for eternity. Lord, let us set ourselves on that. Let that inform the way that we perform work day to day, the way that we speak, Lord, with urgency, Lord, not knowing the day or the time that you will return and us all knowing people who need the gospel. Lord, give us an urgency. God, let us, our lives show that we don't value the things that are gonna pass away in this world, but we value the salvation of souls and the glory of Jesus. Lord, give us strength for we are weak. Lord, let us set our minds on the truth of your word, knowing that you are in all ways sufficient for us. Lord, draw us today to you. Praise things in your name, amen.